You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished uh, colleagues and guests, and our invited speaker, Professor Mary Orr. Only yesterday, of course, we gathered uh, together in this same uh, lecture theatre for our third annual Barbara Wright Memorial Lecture, a lecture which was delivered so graciously uh, by Professor Ségolène Lemen, a Professor Emerita of the University of Paris-Nanterre. So it's quite fitting, I think, that today we should be hosting a talk by uh, Mary Orr, Buchanan Chair of French at the University of St Andrews, and this is our end-of-term lecture in French studies. Now, why is it so fitting? Because yesterday was very much a remembrance of the scholarly achievement of our colleague, Barbara, and that lecture was delivered by our most distinguished colleague, Ségolène, and today's lecture, in complimentary manner, will be delivered today by our most eminent colleague, Professor Mary Orr, Buchanan Chair of French at St Andrews. So I see this as a flourish of excellence in a most fitting conclusion to the academic year in our French department. And at yesterday's reception, I summarised uh, those achievements as a department. And it's worth recalling these now for those who are not present. It's been an intensive year in research terms. The year has been punctuated by conferences on subjects as diverse as Renaissance poetry, Proust, Deleuze, and next week we have a symposium on Francophone African voices in Ireland. We've held on an almost weekly basis a French research seminar which has co covered topics as diverse as Céline, Beckett, the Renaissance Court of Savoy, uh, and Renaissance manuscripts and 19th century French literature. I'm delighted uh, that Charlotte, who has actually facilitated no, you made possible this talk in the first place, and who is running a major conference this weekend, gave a very important paper uh, on the 19th century in that series, and also French cinema. But we've also undertaken to reinforce our research structures. On the 13th of April, we held the launch of the Beckett in French Research Network. Delighted to see Celine here, who is going to be major, who is a major component of this research network, uh, in the light of her splendid research on Beckett. And this was a talk uh, that we held, um, given by uh, Barry McGovern, uh, the subject of which set Beckett at the heart of the college. He is a university man, of course, Samuel Beckett and the Trinity Years. We have a second research network which will be launching next week. Uh, the uh, Francophone African Studies Research uh, Network. Um, and uh, it's our intention to launch further research networks, notably in early modern French studies. I have my doctoral student here, Alexandra Coy, who has just completed uh, her thesis and who will be uh, very much a, a key player uh, in the organisation of this, and another one on French theatre and film. And the awarding of scholarship to three of our students, um, which is a magnificent uh, achievement, is testimony, I think, to the academic excellence of both our staff and our students. Well, enough of us um, uh, turning outwards, as we must always, if we are to guarantee uh, the excellence of which you've seen. Ségolène, I have just praised you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I missed this. As I call this flourish of excellence that we see. Uh, as we turn outwards, and this is the benchmark, 
the academic benchmark that we see. So thank you, May, for making the journey. But let me say a few words about Mary, and a few words, strangely, will suffice to signal her eminence. Mary is the first woman to hold the Buchanan Professor Chip uh, uh, of French at the University of St. Andrews. She's also the founding director of its Centre for Cross-Cultural 19th Century Studies. Her undergraduate degree was in French and German, a degree for which she read at St. Andrews, and this was followed by a PhD at Queen's College, Cambridge, on intertextuality in the works of Claude Simon, the 1985 Nobel Prize winner uh, for literature. And Mary was very much at the forefront, you are still at the forefront of work on intertextuality, uh, and Flaubert, of course, as well. And she taught at the University of Wales, Swansea, Christchurch, Oxford, Queen's College, uh, Cambridge, and was appointed also to a readership at the University of Exeter, and she was also promoted to a personal chair, a personal chair uh, in French studies uh, in 1999. You're then appointed as Professor of French at the University of Southampton, and of course, Mary knows Roger, as <laughs> a key player for all of us, uh, where she served until September 2016, and it was in that year, I think, that you came to St Andrews. So back to her alma mater uh, to take up the chair, uh, the Buchanan chair. And personally, I have very fond memories uh, of meeting Mary when I took up my first academic appointment, um, which was at St Andrews. Uh, it was her kindness, her professionalism, and her vision, which were apparent. I this is over 30 years ago, <laughs> wasn't it? And the flourishing of her career is a due tribute to her most genuine scholarship uh, held in international esteem. So um, I, I won't, I mean, the titles of your books say so much. Flaubert writing the masculine, Flaubert's Madame de Berry, uh, and so on. And in the interdisciplinary research spirit of the European Renaissance scholar, so I'm so delighted. <laughs> uh, George Buchanan, of course, uh, gave the chair. His name uh, has been given to that chair, and Mary's current research uh, projects uh, interconnect literature, history, and science of the French long 19th century, including in comparative context. Now it's this work on Sarah Rauditch Lee, which is funded by the British Academy and St Andrews, and we're going to learn much more about this rich seam of research today in the context of her talk, It Growed or Fostering Discipline in Interdisciplinary uh, Research. So Mary, you're most welcome, so thank, thank you. you. Um, shall we move into my... Yes. Um, so just before we move into my PowerPoint, I will be coming back to this slide. Um, I have been told there are art historians in the room, and it's one of the um, dimensions of the project uh, that I would like to draw out. Um, this uh, drawing and also the cover drawing, which we'll come back to, are Sarah's work. And she was an extremely fine watercolour um, artist, um, and I will touch on that, uh, but it's my um, profound um, gratefulness, in fact, to Barbara Wright uh, in stimulating her interests in the 
the visual and the textual uh, to which I'm also indebted today and Barbara's enormous gener generosity in my own scholarly career um, from being an early PhD student right through to uh, recently and I always have ringing in my ears Barbara's quiet words, Mary only connect. So um, I hear uh, Barbara's words and I'm going to try and do some connecting this afternoon because that I suppose is the key dynamic of what I'm still discovering about my own project and how my own um, very odd uh, formation has looped me constantly backwards and forwards uh, through a fascination with the circulation of texts and knowledge and people and if we don't have the richness of those connections we lose something as much for our disciplines as we do for their impact on interdisciplines so i'm going to be playing with um uh, two versions of this paper and maybe I'll jettison some of it completely if I get fed up with it and just concentrate on the slides because it's to explore that synergy between fostering discipline of my title and how fostering discipline is also fostering interdisciplinarity and what we might mean uh, about discipline and interdisciplinarity are not necessarily uh, what institutions understand by <coughs> interdisciplinarity or indeed uh, were a discipline such as French studies actually fits. Um, so I'm just going to turn first to um, this slide and to this illustration. Um, Sorry, uh, I'll stand here and then you can hear me better. Is that okay? Can everybody hear me? Um, this illustration is um, Sarah's work again. Um, it is uh, watercolour. It's a British fish. There is no portrait of Sarah herself. And I put this drawing up to stand in place of the woman behind it. So um, this is another problem of working on a subject or on a person or on a corpus uh, for which an eminent illustrator leaves no visual trace for history uh, of culture, whether it's she's British, um, but she works in a much wider field. So thank you, Sarah, for this um, wonderful opportunity to share my research. I don't normally have an opportunity uh, to be personal, and I am very happy if you want to ask me quite per what seem to be quite personal instead of seemingly academic questions uh, near the end. But I want to start by asking a question, and I know some of you in the room can put your hands up. Who has just submitted a PhD, an article, a grant application or even a book in the last two weeks? A number of people in the room. Um, when I was first thinking about this paper, I had just sent off the uh, complete draft of the book. So I want to start with that key moment where we've just 
sent off a major piece of work. That's actually the most important moment to reflect on what makes it really important. Is it going to be a finishing point or a starting point for a whole new adventure, both of completing that piece of work as something else, or that uh, submission being a stepping stone for something that we couldn't quite imagine. So that's what I want to open up as the fundamental question of my paper, is not why uh, larger developments of our discipline matter, but how they might matter in a more staged reflection on how to grow um, a project uh, which is not what we set out to do. So I want to come now to my title. Does anyone have a guess where it growed comes from as a quotation? This is the intertextual question. Yes, um, so it comes from um, Harriet Beecher uh, Stowe's uh, abolitionist novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which appeared first in serial form in 1851 as a two-volume work and was published um, on both sides of the Atlantic as a single volume uh, in 1852. And Topsy, uh, in whose mouth um, Beecher Stowe puts the words, is a much quoted but little talked about slave girl. And in the novel, she's seen as something almost subhuman. And her white adult owner, uh, teaching her about God, asks who made her. And Topsy replies, and I quote, Nobody as I knows on. I spect I growed. Don't think nobody never made me. So I want to start with potentially a contentious um, set of issues. I want to quote the slave girl's wisdoms and the ways in which she responds uh, outside the plan or design, whether of God or the controls of the civilizing mission, um, to her white mistress. And her response is a wonderful challenge to what research growth or growth as a human being might be. Is it something innate? Is it something that is controlled and managed from the outside? Um, and therefore, how does research grow? Is it something that we respond to through the disciplinary structures around us? Do we choose? Um, how to grow, or is it something much more complicated? So I put Topsy's statement at the top of this um, talk uh, because I'm not sure I quite understand it yet, uh, but I'm beginning to understand it a little bit more, that it's a mix of all of these things. And Sarah Bowditch uh, Lee was a passionate abolitionist, uh, and she um, ha has unusual records of her dialogues with uh, West African women um, with whom she was in dialogue about her fish research, but I'll come back to that shortly. So I want to think a little bit more now about um, how I came across Sarah Bowditch Lee. I now see myself as a professor of 19th century French literature, culture and science. And I never set out 
I didn't know who Sarah Bowditch was. I might never have worked on her. But I was working on Flaubert in 2005 at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France um, on his Tentation Saint Antoine. And I had a major theory at the time that Flaubert was using the prism of the fourth century Saint Anthony uh, to speak about similar heresies and scientific problems in his contemporary 19th century uh, France. I knew I was on to something because the parallels were becoming increasingly obvious. And I was researching the works of Georges Cuvier, uh, but had yet to crack um, Flaubert's uh, key scene near the end of the Tentation between the Sphinx and the Chimera, arguing about their non-fitting analogues. And suddenly I realised that um, Flaubert was representing the Querelle des Analogues of 1830 between Cuvier and Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire, and it concerned ex uh, extinction or steady state um, transformations. And I will make a confession. I couldn't get my research to work, so my mind wandered, maybe yours doesn't, but mine does, in reading rooms. And I went back to the catalogue and I scrolled through all of Cuvier's works, and I've been through them 50 times. All of a sudden, um, uh, I came across a title which, in the French, was Excursion dans les Îles de Madère et de Porto Santo, catalogued under Cuvier of 1826. I passed over it 10 or 15 times, and that was my light bulb moment. Cuvier never went to Madeira. He never worked on Madeiran um, uh, natural history. And because I wasn't concentrating on Flaubert, in my curiosity, I, I called it up. And I don't know how good your eyesight is, uh, but have a go to see where you spot Cuvier on that title page. So that's A. Cuvier, you're very close. Uh, I'm looking for the name Cuvier. Anybody spotted it? We would expect a key man to have his name right up there in the lights. Anyone see it yet? Keep going. Try looking at Paris. It's just above Paris. And what do you see? Um, uh, ouvrage traduit de l'anglais et accompagné de notes de Monsieur le Baron Cuvier. Is that it? Point final? Et de Monsieur le Baron Humboldt. So I couldn't believe my eyes. My work on Cuvier and Humboldt for my Flaubert book, I immediately knew that these were the two most eminent men, both in museum science and in world exploration. How was it that these two figures wrote notes in an 1826 edition uh, for somebody who was a T.E. Bowditch, but he's uh, par feu, Monsieur Bowditch, and I think you will see further down the slide that there is a Madame Bodich. Now, for my uh, research on 19th century French history of science, 
Um, I'm also quite knowledgeable in 19th century British history of science of the period. Um, Madame Bodic should just not exist whatsoever in the history of either country. So I didn't know whether she was the wife of an Englishman, uh, French wife of an Englishman, or whether uh, this was her translated title and who she was. And because of the wonders of the Bibliothèque Nationale reading room, I could go to the online catalogue for the British uh, Library, and I immediately checked uh, the name Bowditch. It stands out. And I discovered that the original edition of 1825 was published uh, by Whitaker the previous year. And very interestingly, um, the, there are about uh, 40 plates. Uh, in the English edition, they're interleaved. In the French edition, uh, it's a separate album. So um, here I was confronting a project um, that I could do nothing with at the time, uh, but I just realised how significant it was. And the other thing, through my disciplinary knowledge, uh, was that I knew that the Paris edition was quite special. It's published by F.G. Uh, uh, um, uh, Levrault, and Levrault was the official public publisher for all the transactions and the major oeuvre from the Paris Museum. So again, this was no insignificant um, publication. And again, for a French publisher to uh, publish the translation of the work by a woman uh, is fairly significant. So. I could stop the lecture here. The rest is history. I've written up the book. Um, but actually, I was finishing off my big book on Flaubert. And I then had to come back to the question, so what do I do with this project? What do I do with it? I've discovered it. I think I know how significant it is. But I have no idea what her corpus is like, how she fits in. I'm a 19th century uh, professor of French studies. Is this French studies enough? What do I do with it? And I did some preliminary work because I couldn't let it go. I kept on my work on Flaubert and 19th century French science and so on and so on. Uh, and I looked at all of the criteria for publishers and all the criteria for funding uh, streams. So it, it didn't fit into Anglophone history of science. It didn't fit into Francophone history of science. Didn't even fit into women's history of science. Didn't fit into feminist and gender studies research. And I didn't have a portrait of Sarah. So um, and there wasn't enough material in the um, dictionary of, of um, national biography. Um, and she didn't work in just one field, so I couldn't slot her in as an eminent botanist or as an eminent uh, travel writer. And so I could have come to the conclusion this was a complete non-starter project. Complete non-starter project. And then I thought, well, and I would put it in Topsy's words now, so what is a misfit? Is a misfit somebody who's framing a reply to growth, um, who doesn't normally have a voice, is not normally accepted in the frameworks in which knowledge is transpired. And is this an opportunity? Is it an opportunity to build a comparative, bilingual, even cross-channel argument for a notion of the adventure of natural history that is uh, really significant in the 1820s and 30s? 
And what, in fact, was her corpus? Um, she has two major publications um, in French. Uh, most of her publications are in English. Uh, she, in fact, um, had done all the drawings uh, for publications which came out under her husband's name. Uh, they unusually were trained by Cuvier and Humboldt in Paris uh, from 1818 to 1822. And they uh, gathered together the funds for their first scientific, independently funded scientific trip to Sierra Leone by publishing translations of Cuvier's latest um, discoveries and reclassifications. And uh, of those, the most significant is uh, to classify fish as vertebrates and not as a separate class. So all of a sudden, uh, fish were brought into the families of which, of course, human beings and mammals uh, to which they belong. And then I refer briefly to uh, her drawings. Uh, I knew that um, she had very prominent uh, scientific uh, illustrative expertise, um, not only in very rare um, fishes of Great Britain, uh, but also the, um, the plates and drawings in the excursions. And then my bottom part of the slide, so what was I going to do with it? Was I going to focus it as interdisciplinary or was I going to focus it as French disciplinary research? So I'll tell you what I did and this is a reconstruction of my narrative and you'll see the same drawing and the blurb on the uh, left of your screen uh, was the um, only available internet uh, record of Sarah from the then Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences. They put on a, an exhibition on fish drawings and uh, they happened to have one of the only 50, not 100 uh, copies of the, the, the book in question. I've just put in yellow the bits that are um, false information um, and I decided that I needed to put a little marker down until I could make up my mind as to whether it should be a disciplinary or interdisciplinary project. And I went to a major US conference uh, in Victorian studies and I presented Sarah's work uh, and background in a French formation for the first time. And I want to uh, focus on the word Sarah Bodrich's purview of the sciences. And that helped me to understand that I needed to bring in a comparative focus, uh, but very much to um, build in the fact that she was trained in France and that that made all the difference to how she was viewing not just the natural history, uh, but also her travel accounts of West Africa, which thread through her some um, 15 uh, publications from 18, uh, 1825 until her death. Um, and someone at the Leverhulme Trust uh, felt that um, a remarkable woman in science, Sarah Bowditch Lee, was worth funding. And so in uh, 2010, I had the opportunity to uh, leave aside my French studies work and then to draw it into exploring how it might be uh, interdisciplinary and then somehow also disciplinary. Uh, this is a tip for those of you who are putting in um, research grants. Uh, I thankfully for the Leverhulme only promised 
uh, at least one major article because I had no idea what the research richness was going to be. I didn't promise a book. I said I was going to produce at least one major article and in fact I produced quite a number uh, but it was a very useful thing to do so that I didn't feel uh, constrained by finishing off something that wasn't ready and what I did was I explored different parts of Sarah's corpus to try and understand her work uh, in more detail and I also published in a number of different journals I would never have published in uh, before as a professor of French, French studies of any stripe, or even um, French history of science. Uh, and I've just flagged the variety of those. They range across children's literature, uh, women's writing, annals of science, uh, notes and records, um, and uh, the Journal of Literature and Science, and uh, Forum for Modern Language Studies. And these uh, pilot projects, if you like, uh, help me to understand the complexities, but also see the French science in and behind Sarah's project. I still didn't have a focus. That's really important. I still did not have a focus. I knew it had to be in 19th century French studies. It was the roots of the project. And the list I've just um, shown you, um, I knew the book was something larger than any of the articles I'd already published. I didn't feel that my articles could somehow become chapters and just be slotted into something. So I was in fact already keeping back some of my best work that I knew I hadn't published on before which was helping me to see between the cracks of all the many things. And I pulled one article that I had prepared uh, on the French excursions, uh, which is, uh, in effect, the first natural history of the Gambia, because I realised it probably had something much more significant. And I uh, presented it to a journal of Commonwealth Studies, and I actually uh, withdrew it at... Um, at revision stage. And so I decided that uh, I couldn't hang around any longer. And it was in fact the awfulness of COVID and being locked out of my office and out of libraries. And I had a row from here to Sarah of box files of all the archive research I'd done on Sarah, locked down where I couldn't reach for them. And I decided I needed to focus on what would fit on my laptop screen. What was the core of the project? What would I put on an A4 page that would get to the heart of it and define what was distinctive about it? So I decided that I had nothing to lose, everything to gain. I was going to go for another uh, eye-wateringly uh, tough fellowship. There only are 10 senior research fellows uh, every year. And I wrote the proposal in the fastest time I've ever written anything. I had already uh, put together some thoughts for a book proposal. Uh, unusually, I didn't have a book proposal uh, at the beginning of the project. Uh, the book proposal helped me to write the, um, the British Academy proposal and a second tip from my talk, um, I sent it to one of my longest standing 
toughest research friends. And I asked for his opinion. We share work and we give each other the benefit of our most severest critical doubt. And he said to me, Mary, I think this project's a winner. But you must put front and centre the USPs, the unique selling points. And that's what I did, and I put in the proposal, um, and uh, the application went through the various channels. Um, and again, in wonderful tribute to Barbara Wright, um, I was hosting the uh, SDN um, first online conference in 2021 in St Andrews, and um, I put together a panel in honour of Barbara Wright uh, later on that day and I was dipping out in the virtual coffee morning uh, to my emails and lo and behold there was an email from British Academy uh, to tell me that I had got a fellowship and I felt it was extremely fitting that um, in honour of Barbara I had only connected. <laughs> so uh, the key thing for, from that fellowship uh, was that in the May I discovered that it had in fact been awarded the Donald Winch Fund Senior Research Fellowship in Intellectual History. And while there's no uh, drop-down uh, box for the kind of cross-disciplinary work that in fact the Bowditch Project uh, is, uh, nonetheless the British Academy gave me a, a label for myself that I had never imagined for myself uh, that I might be an intellectual historian. Um, so I'm going to, uh, on these two slides are the table of contents uh, for the book um, and I can talk about any one of the subject areas of the chapters. None of them uh, is built on any of my articles but you'll see that the structure is quintessentially my first view in that epiphany uh, from the excursions. So I first of all canvas Cuvier and the drawings come into that pun and I look at uh, what is in the ex excursion, the very first natural history of West African fishes um, and I discover in that chapter in the new work uh, that her name is still recorded in uh, current French francophone fish biology uh, when it is not recorded at all in the Bible of uh, modern fish biology, <coughs> excuse me, which is anglophone called fish base. Uh, then I look at her freshwater fishes of Great Britain. Uh, then I look at her um, first scientific biography <coughs> of the Baron Cuvier, which was published in French and English in 1833. And I published on the French version, and I look at its transatlantic reach in that chapter. And then you'll see in the second part, I harness Humboldt. Um, so Alexander von Humboldt uh, is not known for mentoring women, but he mentored Sarah. And there's my Gambia chapter. Um, I present it as the first plant geography uh, of that part of West Africa. Uh, then I turn to her notes uh, and recording of um, native women's uh, intellectual um, approaches and medicine and use of native plants uh, and other species. And then I turn to um, 
uh, Sarah's pioneering work in developing natural history fiction uh, for British consumption uh, in a, an absolutely remarkable novel on which there is no scholarship whatever called The um, African Wanderers. Um, and uh, please don't believe all the myths that you've read about um, the first instance of gorillas appearing. They actually appear in that text and Sarah <coughs> It's groundbreaking in representing the female gorilla of the species, where uh, a female gorilla uh, is just simply not known. Then in the final part of the book, um, both Cuvier and Humboldt were passionate about disseminating their knowledge to wide public audiences and to teaching the next generations. So they wrote quite a lot of lectures which became uh, teaching texts and that allows me to really uh, understand what would be called popularisation of science in Victorian studies or vulgarisation in French which doesn't really take off until the 1850s uh, and to look at her extraordinary um, scientific illustrations, uh, her first textbook Natural History which was on the um, Natural History course at the University of Edinburgh already in 1845 and then finally to look at uh, her uh, anecdotes uh, as natural history uh, under uh, seemingly popular guise. And my book uh, emulates Sarah's by uh, having uh, nine appendices uh, and uh, looking at the ways in which she was uh, connecting uh, with the eminent specialists in her field at the time. So this slide brings together uh, some of the um, vision of the book. I'm trying to refit interdisciplinarity uh, for disciplinary purpose. I want to draw out the cross-cultural and the richness of uh, the multifaceted nature of um, French studies and 19th century French studies. And I cannot say it uh, often <laughs> enough. French is the international lingua franca for science throughout the 19th century, uh, with German of course, and it was only um, around about the First World War or shortly after that English becomes the um, international vernacular for science. And so as a 19th century French professor, I've been on a blast um, all the way through because anything that I turn to as a French scientific text in international contexts, I can read in its two major languages. So do not hesitate to apply textual studies to non-literary and non-cultural works because science is of course part of culture. Uh, my book also challenges national and nationalistic rosters for scientific endeavour and who does them and who doesn't and how native voices and um, voices from, um, we would call them the peripheries of empires, actually are foundational uh, to building wider knowledge of uh, important species. And I'm also tackling the question that a lack of portrait uh, is no excuse for not going back and investigating the art history of a major exponent. And I've in fact uncovered um, at least another 180 drawings that are unsigned that I know are Sarah's work. She illustrated um, that textbook for natural history herself. 
So my disciplinary plea today is that interdisciplinary work has to catch up with us. It has to catch up with this because we're working already in transnational and at least bilingual contexts. These outsiders in um, uh, Francophone history of science are involved in the most major circles of key scientific names of the time. And a woman like Sarah really puts a lens on who is central and who is peripheral uh, and to get a grasp of contemporary networks of knowledge which are not the ones that historians of science are necessarily picking up. She was, of course, a nonconformist. She was Unitarian, uh, an abolitionist all of her life. And that nonconformist educational background, I think, matters enormously. But she would have learned languages automatically as part of her um, upbringing. Uh, and her concerns for intergenerational science are particularly ones that I'm trying to bring out in the book. And that uh, is where I'm going to close. And that's really how I was going to tell her story. And I've chosen this illustration. Uh, it's an illustration of Gambian uh, figures. And the one uh, in the yellow uh, dress is a mulatto woman. She is one of the key uh, traders of international networks. Uh, and what I've done in the book is to imagine her introducing Sarah to us from the quayside as she's leaving. Her husband dies of fever in 1823. And that's the point I start the book. She should never have written it. <laughs> but I put in the voice of my Gambian woman uh, a view of Sarah. And she has her three children around her skirts. Thank you very much. Thank mm -hmm. you.